is Australia. This fucking language. Let there be a thousand blossoms bloom as far as I'm concerned. But I ain't spending any time on it. Don't stop wearing the Speedos. You're listening to Decode, the Batuta Advocates podcast series for those Australians who have tuned out or never tuned in to the dark arts of federal politics. It's cold bean. You wouldn't believe it. A goddamn bloody adult. Hello and welcome back to Decode, the Batuta Advocates podcast series where we try and make sense of the political world, the dark arts of politics. We're back after a little bit of a break, taking a bit of time for ourselves, and we've got a new host in the Desert Rock FM studio. Alongside me today is Dior Dave, the Batuta Advocates firebrand political commentator, our very own Hunter S. Thompson. He cut his teeth in sports journalism and now has his sights on the serious end of town. He's our answer to Andrew Bolt out here in the Channel Country. He's been doing his thing uh, for a couple of years now. He's been going after the big wigs in Canberra and down in Brisbane as well in state parliament. He's jumping into the podcast format to uh, help us break down what does happen in the world of politics. And you're about to hear his voice right now. Dior Dave, how are you? Yeah, cheers, Wendell. It's great to have my voice out there and be in the studio with the big boys. I've loved my time at this great institution, Batuta Advocate, and hope I can keep adding to it in the podcast studio. Yeah, absolutely. You were on uh, Desert Rock FM a couple of weeks ago, almost got into a fist fight with Mayor Keith Carton. You're going after him. Uh, really inflammatory stuff. Hoping you can bring that to Decode as well. We'll see, we'll see what can happen there. But yeah, exciting to have you on board and looking forward to getting into interviews with these politicians, covering what happens in the shit fight that is Canberra, Brisbane. But we're actually going to do something a little bit different today. Uh, we normally do do federal politics here on Decode, but we're going to dive into uh, state politics today. Now we're releasing a couple of days after the result from the Victorian state election. As everybody knows, uh, what happened down there happened down there was to be expected, hence why we didn't really bother diving into it because there wasn't really a whole lot to cover. Now, where there is another election coming up down in New South Wales, the state election down there, and It's an interesting situation. So we're looking at what might be happening down there and how it's all going to play out. So today, to give us his pitch for the top job in the state is Chris Minns, Labor leader, opposition leader and MP for COGRA. Thanks very much for joining the podcast, Chris. You bet, boys. Thanks so much for having me on. And amazing result out of Victoria on the weekend. I mean, really blew our minds. It's I know. I couldn't believe Not it at all. Worth talking it, about, you know what I mean? It was like yeah. the World Cup there, Saudi Arabia and Argentina. It was just a result you couldn't, you, you know, couldn't, you couldn't predict, predict it. it at yeah, all. I think so, we're um, all still in amazement about it. But yeah, you know, there you go. An absolute, uh, an absolute underdog. Story you wake up there. Sunday and then you've got this story that you, yeah. you're just not sure how it's going to work out. Who knew running guys with the personality of Matthew Guy himself would have ended <laughs> up like that? Anyway. <laughs> That's all been uh, said and done. We've heard enough about it. We are looking at what's going on down in your state, yes. down in your city of Sydney. We tend to talk a lot about Sydney, unfavorably quite often sure. about Sydney. But before we get into how all that looks, I just wanted to ask you about your journey into politics. Some of your counterparts, uh, maybe a little bit more grey, a little bit more weathered, but you're a young, fresh face looking to lead the Labor Party at this upcoming election in March. Can you tell us a little bit about your journey into politics and how you found yourself in the arena? Yeah. Well, look, I I really like politics. I I was interested in it when I was a kid and I was interested in it when I was a teenager. 
and I liked sport and my parents really were interested in politics. My dad loved Paul Keating and we watched elections. I mean, we were kind of like a dorky political family. Yeah, but yeah, Labor, yeah. not. We weren't interested in politics for the sake of it. We were interested in Labor. Yeah. And I still remember it was like summer, December 1991 or something like that and my old man had the radio on in the backyard. We didn't know whether Hawk had beaten Keating or Keating had beaten Hawk. And I was just hooked from that moment on. I just thought this is so exciting. For me, it was almost like a sporting event. Mm. So I don't pretend to not be interested in it. I really like it. I like watching what's happening in other states. If I've got the time, which increasingly I don't, to see what's happening in America with, with you know politics over there, which is getting increasingly sort of freaky, it's really interesting being part of it as a profession because it's a difficult job, but every day is interesting and it's mm. often exciting. Politics over there in America I feel like is a lot more fast-paced and entertaining than some of their sporting events which can drag on for hours <laughs> yeah. and hours and hours. Yeah. Uh, they got all the best characters in politics and we got all the best characters in our sports teams. So yeah. I think I'd rather have it that way. <laughs> you yeah. want it that way, you don't want it the other way. No so way. your family's crowding around the TV, that's your grand final night is watching elections in your family. What is it that you love about politics? What is it in particular? Yeah, I think in some ways it's the personalities. You mm. know, it does feel like the stakes are higher. I think we went through a boring patch there when I first got kind of elected and the years prior to that, the issues seemed a little bit pedestrian. But I've noticed in recent years, particularly when I go to high schools, when I first got elected, people weren't necessarily that interested in who the local MP was. But I don't know whether it's just me, but I get the sense, particularly for 16, 17, 18-year-olds, um, they've got a particular interest in what's going on. And I don't know if that's a kind of focus on climate change. Mm. feels like the threats are more existential, that they've got a real interest in what's happening with the state, with the country. So I'm not sure whether we're heading into a bit of a political age, but um, it's, it, I like it. I mean, I think it's good for the country. And I don't, I'm not one of these people that just sort of tells people that they shouldn't get involved in politics or that everybody involves a rat bag. They're not. There's some really good people. It's just that the issues are difficult and there's not, often not an easy way through it. And how do you see that? You know, you say that kids these days are getting more interested in politics, but it can seem like it's a bit ideological. There are things like climate change and stuff like that, which are really big picture issues. How do you kind of narrow that down to tell people this is what we can do in the state government and how this can affect them? Well, I mean, all of those issues in some way are represented in state politics as well. So when it comes to energy policy, a lot of those decisions about renewable energy or coal-fired power or access to gas are going to have to be driven by whoever's running New South Wales because a lot of the legislation is based in the state. And Neville ran in the late 70s, built coal-fired power stations on top of coal mines, largely in the Hunter Valley. People didn't really know about the threat of climate change. There hadn't been that, you know, amazing report out of the US Senate at that point. And it was a brilliant strategy because basically the transport costs of digging up coal and putting it into a coal-fired power station was zero. And as a result, New South Wales had really cheap energy, which meant that we could have a manufacturing sector, which means that we could manufacture steel. And all of a sudden, all this industry, particularly for the Hunter Valley, just exploded in those subsequent decades, which is important for the regions because you've got source of jobs and economic growth that weren't based in the middle of Sydney CBD. Now we've got to think about the next iteration, you know, like where do we go next in terms mm. of this renewable energy revolution? And most of those decisions or a lot of them will be decided in New South Wales. So, you know, I mean, I would argue if we put in the guys that have been in for 12 years, for 16 years, 
you'll get more of the same. But we're probably in a fork in a road when it comes to a whole bunch of decisions like that. And it's going to be decided in New South Wales. I do want to ask about, you just mentioned there, 12 to 14 years that the government down there have been in power for. It's been quite a long time. But just before that, you're talking about renewable energy there and stuff. What is, what's Labor's vision? What's Labor's plan for New South Wales in terms of that? In, in terms as well, sorry, of the, the actual meat of it. What are we, what are we yeah. looking at? So we will legislate to have net zero by 2050 in mm. New South Wales. We introduced that legislation a couple of, oh, I think about a year ago, maybe six months ago. It was defeated by the government. Now they say that that's their goal as well, but they're refusing to legislate for it. Now we think that business in particular needs certainty in relation to targets particularly mm. for bring online renewable energy because a lot of these things will have to be decided by private capital being put into the new south wales market and if they think that you're going to have government whether it's labor or the coalition the libs and the nats that are going to chip and change when it, in relation to those targets they're not going to put that private capital into the new south wales energy markets which means we're going to have this massive gap between what's been promised and what needs to become online and what's actually online in the state. The second part of this puzzle is um, the privatisation of our electricity assets, particularly generation. I mean, this is a crazy thing because you expect a kind of basic level of competence from your government. Like you wouldn't expect them to screw up this bad, but we sold off Vales Point Power Station, meaning we meaning the government sold mm. it off for $1 million a couple of years ago. And the new private owner of that power station on-sold it for $200 million last month. So someone's making a killing out of the sale of these monopoly assets that have been owned by the state. And if you look at Queensland or even big countries like the Gulf states and Singapore and Malaysia, they've got big government funds that operate and own that critical infrastructure and in New South Wales, we just seem to keep selling it off to get this short-term sugar hit to paper over the New South Wales budget. But in the long run, consumers miss out. Yeah, I think it's the UAE make uh, something like $63 billion off their natural gas reserves. And I think we make somewhere in the realm of a billion in terms of actual taxes and stuff that we bring back in. So as you said, but on that privatisation thing, what have you guys got left to sell uh, to sell down there? Is there much or is everything pretty much gone? Yeah, no, there's heaps. Um, it's a funny part of the energy market. So we've sold a controlling stake in Ausgrid and Endeavour Energy, but the state still owns 49% of those two power companies and they're electricity distributors. So 49% of the distribution of the dividends comes to New South Wales coffers, which means that we don't have to raise taxes. We've got a, effectively a regulated source of income that's mm. not coming out of levying people in the state. We own 100% of essential energy, which is the country energy distributor or provider. We own all of the transport assets in New South Wales, where they've been privatised in Victoria, for example. We own all of Sydney water. Water assets have been privatised in the UK. We own our transport assets. We own a ton of corporations that effectively derive a profit. Mm that come back to the New South Wales government, which means that you don't have to jack up taxes, fees, fines, charges, whatever, on New South Wales taxpayers. And I don't, we don't talk about it enough, meaning the opposition doesn't talk about it enough, but we're the highest taxing state of any jurisdiction in the country. So I don't have the option to just kind of keep cranking up taxes on people because they can't afford it. And so how do you sell that to people when, you know, the average person wouldn't know that 
New South Wales is so high taxing. And when they hear that kind of stuff that you say might sound good on paper and it makes sense, but when some people hear there's going to be more government in our lives, yeah. how do you sell that to the people who just kind of want the government out? And how do you tell them that it's good for them? Well, I mean, I guess I just make the argument that it, particularly when it comes to monopoly assets and, for example, if you live in Western Sydney, you want to get to your job in the inner city, there's no access to public transport, you've got to use toll roads. Now, the government's privatised 100% of those toll roads and over the course of those contracts, those companies, those private companies will make over $100 billion in revenue from the back pockets of New South Wales motorists. You can't go to other sources. You can't really go to another source for generation of your energy. It's not like you can get it from power lines that someone else is providing to the front of your house. So when it comes to monopolies, I think we're getting the short straw as a result of selling off these assets. And it doesn't mean that I'm going to start trying to buy up Google or the Batuta Advocate or Facebook or something. We will take offers um, <laughs> if you can make a decent Sovereign one. Sovereign Wealth to go. Fund to come and buy a Batuta Advocate. Yeah. Happy to go, propaganda. Uh, we can replace <laughs> the ABC, I think. Absolutely. Know, no, no. Out for us <laughs> it was a really good idea. So, you know, it's more about essential infrastructure that the state needs to grow. And yeah. More, it's not even families and communities. There's often business, you know, particularly logistic and transport firms on toll roads. They're just furious mm. because one company now owns all or part, I'll see if I can remember them all, of the M2, the M4, the M5, the M5 East, the M7, the M8, the Cross City Tunnel, the Lane Cove Tunnel, North Connects and the Eastern Distributor. So that's close to monopoly power when yep. you consider Sydney's the most tolled city on the face of the earth. And we're not going in the same direction as London, which is ploughing money into their public transport infrastructure, or New York that's doing the same thing. We're moving towards this monopoly toll road sort of vision for Sydney where you stretch out people over a big plane and you sprawl and they're all connected by toll roads where they have to chip into this private company. I, look, it's just not a vision that's working. Mm. It seems like madness mm -hmm. when you talk to people down there, the amount that they get told. Melbourne, obviously the lockdown capital of the world, a mantle that they uh, some people have, wear with pride, some people don't. Sydney seems to be the toll capital of the world. How does it sit with the older heads in your party that you're talking about uh, stopping privatisation, given maybe Joey Johns of politics, Paul Keating, started privatising things. He liked to, him and Bob Hawke sold a huge amount of infrastructure on a federal level. Bob Carr himself, he sold a few things uh, pretty soon after leaving Macquarie Street, was at Macquarie Bank. How does that vision sit with those guys who essentially helped orchestrate this plan for privatising Australia? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that there is a material difference between the kind of assets that you sell at a federal level historically. And, I mean, it's not for me to go and defend or oppose things that have happened historically by federal Labor governments or previous state Labor governments. All I can really do is say we've made a decision in New South mm. Wales that we've had enough of it because we've – We've looked at the implications of the sale. Yeah. And you gotta remember, you're right, actually, to raise this question, because it was a it was a topic for debate inside Labor when they started selling off these assets. Some people say, Oh, we should back the government for it. Problem is, on an economic point of view, from an economic point of view, if you sell an asset that generates revenue, let's just say it puts two billion dollars into the government coffers every year. They pay dividends to the government. They pay tax equivalent payments. So they don't pay tax, but they pay the effective tax rate, not to the Commonwealth, but to the state government. So we get a great deal from there. And they also 
They also pay to use our credit facility. So they get three sources mm. of payment from an electricity company. Once you sell that company, and let's just say we sold it for $10 billion, you get that upfront capital, but you lose the trailer. You use that annual fee that used to be sent to the New South mm. Wales government. You know, that alongside the private company's incentive to jack up the fees to yeah. justify the sale price is another reason why I just don't think it's in the interest of the taxpayers because at some point, if it's part of your strategy to just keep selling off government assets, at some point you just come to the end of the road. And I kind of use, and I don't think it's a poor metaphor or analogy, but it's a little bit like getting a massive credit card bill and saying, oh, you know what we're going to do to service this bill? We're going to sell off the house or sell off the car. I mean, it limits what you can do within the state. So I guess you you asked me earlier, how do we get that message out? I was trying to make the argument. Mm. like Just you, keep, yeah, keep you, bringing the argument and it should stack up really yeah. to a lot of people. I, 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 I think a lot of people are sceptical about selling off all these government assets and I think they've got every right to be. Mm. And so it sounds like, I mean, a Labor government in power will kind of change the strategy and maybe some fundamentals about how the state's being run. Do you think that kind of the trust is there in the people in the Labor government when you've got these kind of stories or cliches around the economic management and how the Liberals are seen to be better or about in New South Wales specifically with Eddie Obeid and some of the corruption that, you know, still hangs in some of the older people's mind when they think of New South Wales Labor? How do you kind of win that trust back and change these perceptions? I mean, that's the big that's the big question and hurdle for me to climb over, mm. and it's a hard one. And if you look at our shadow cabinet team and our our the people that we're running to form government in New South Wales, I think all but one were not members of the previous Labor government. Mm. So, you know, we're brand new to the government scene, but I think that that's a good thing because it brings a level of energy and focus that you don't have from people who've been there for 20, 30, 40, 50 years. Mm. Uh, we're really interested in turning the page on New South Wales, bringing the best and brightest minds and think about what's possible in the state. And I think that when you look at some of these entrenched problems in New South Wales, whether it's inflation or real problems with the education system and the health system, we need a fresh set of eyes on these things because mm. you're getting the same solutions to the same problems over and over again. I would argue that, but I genuinely believe that's the case. In in relation to economic management, it, it drives me crazy that the government or the Liberal Party, not just the current mob, Dominic Perrottet, but across the country, seem to get away with this racket where they just turn up, walk out on the football field, and immediately they get credit for economic management. <laughs> like why? What What? What, what happened? What do they do? Uh, when you have uh, mates who run 70% of the newspapers <laughs> right. in the state and the country, well, I more feel like. More reason to yeah. buy the Batuta Advocate. Yeah, yeah. 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 always, always uh, New South Wales government broadcasting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, you know, in, in New South Wales, we've got $183 billion worth of gross debt, which is the biggest percentage of debt that we've ever had as a percentage of gross state product and the highest number that we've ever had in our entire history. And the interest on that debt now, I think in the last couple of months, is now greater each year, every year than the entire police budget and growing because the cost of servicing that debt's going up as a result of interest rates going mm. up around the world. 
And that's partly as a result of selling off a lot of government assets so you don't have the revenue coming in and that means that your debt levels just keep climbing and climbing and climbing. So I don't know where he gets – I don't know I don't know how they get the credit for good economic management. But It certainly does seem like a narrative that gets bought uh, around New South Wales, Queensland and the country at large really. It's like your, your tradie cousin who – has a high interest Ford Raptor, couple of a couple of credit card debts, and um, labelling them a smart economic manager because they've got some nice flashy things, but ultimately uh, the debts are racking up. I wanted to ask now. You mentioned a few big talking points going into this next election. Um, things that I'm sure people in Sydney, Newcastle, Wollongong are going to hear a lot about over the next couple of months. Have you got any kind of interesting campaign strategies? I was looking back at your career. You're a firefighter for a little while. No, no disrespect to Luke Foley, uh, Morris Yemmer, those kinds of guys, but you're a noted good-looking man, a real good-looking rooster, firefighter. Is there any potential like for a maybe calendar or something? I was thinking maybe is there a, there a calendar, a bit yeah. of oil down at the station, holding an axe, you know, oh. chopping some wood, yeah, something stuff, like that. Yeah. Everyone can get yeah. maybe like each month. There's a Chris Mins new premier January, firefighter February. shot. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't know. We we haven't talked about that, but you know, no. I mean, the short answer is no. We're okay. definitely not going to do that. But you know, we appreciate the suggestions. <laughs> There's no such thing as a bad idea, I guess. No, we're not going to do that. <laughs> I don't think, um, yeah, I don't know what our, we're kind of working through our campaign. Yeah. What I would say about the campaign strategy is that I don't think that the same old everything they've said is bad and everything we're saying is great. You know, like the the TV ads where they, you know, they have the grainy photo and the big red <laughs> row. We'll probably do a bit of that. But, <laughs> but I, don't yeah. think that, I don't think that works. And mm. I, don't, I reckon particularly, I don't know, I think people are pretty cynical about it all. Yeah, and so if you if I come and talk to you guys like your questions today about privatisation, it's like, well, back it up. What do you mean? Like you're mm-hmm. saying you're not going to do privatisation. What's the problem with privatisation? So that kind of glib one-liner stuff, we've got to get, we've got to go deeper. Well, I mean, you'd say you don't like to attack the opposition too much, but it feels like in the last couple of years, I mean, both state and federally, there's been a lot that Labor could kind of go with them to attack. I mean, yeah. the state government lost their leader and deputy leader only last year. There's been a lot of controversy, some ICACs. You know, how much can you kind of dig into the past or have Labor just missed their opportunity? If there was an election last year, would it have been a landslide? Yeah. I mean, look, that's a fair point. And from a political tactic point of view you know a lot of people would go you should spend most of your time just hoeing into these guys and there's that cliche you know oppositions don't win elections governments lose them but i guess we're trying something new and that's been born out of (laughs) repeated losses (laughs) from the south wales labor there's been some pretty creative losses in there i mean kind of unlosable elections just at the 11th hour you know (laughs) any plans to be caught at a blue mountains pub on the eve of (laughs) election no no probably not in the blue mountains so we've got to try something different and i think well i know that 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 has to be if we're going to knock them we have to come up with alternatives and explain why it's gone bad and i also think you've alluded to it a little bit in some of your questions yeah they've got a pretty rotten record when it comes to integrity but i can't just say that particularly aspects of the last labor government were perfect they weren't and a lot of people would be jumping on me straight away going, well, hang on a second, you had some really bad apples in your patch as well. And they're right. I'm not going mm. to um, lie about it. it. We did have some appalling behaviour, criminal behaviour inside Labor. So 
I think the best thing I can do is just be, you know, try and be refreshing about it and say, I acknowledge it. It's true. It did happen. We're not going to try and uh, pull the wool over everybody's eyes. Make sure ICAC's completely funded and, um, and it's independently funded so that they don't have to come begging to the government that they may have to investigate. And, um, hopefully, hopefully prove to people that we've turned a page and we're ready for the responsibility. I also think ICAC, having been involved in politics for a long time, and I reckon the presence of ICAC stops corruption before it even begins because people think, you know what, the consequences of doing something bad are really extreme and I think it civilises behaviour in the state, which I think is a good thing. Hard to argue with that. If they're listening. <laughs> Very hard to argue that. It's, it is curious why um, certain members of federal politics were so opposed to a national body to prevent corruption, but bill's passed so we'll see what happens there if it does have teeth and whether it can do anything chris Minns, thanks very much for taking the time to talk to us giving us a bit of a preview of what we can look forward to over the next few months we'll be keeping an eye on it and uh yeah stay away from those blue mountains pubs (laughs) on the evening election please i appreciate it no it's great fun and i'd love to come back before polling day sounds good thanks chris cheers